Let's start with the true or false test at the beginning of the sermon. First, if I keep the rules, God will keep his promises to me. True or false? If I keep the rules, God will keep his promises. Second question, if I keep the rules, I'll stay on God's good side. True or false? If I keep the rules, I'll stay on God's good side. And then lastly, if I keep the rules, God will finally be happy with me. True or false? God will finally be happy with me if I keep the rules. My guess is you take this test and your mind gets three out of three and your heart gets zero out of three because it's an easy test in theology class. Uh, we know that God deals with us not because we keep the rules so well, but because of his mercy. But our hearts tell us and believe deeply that God's whole attitude towards us and his willingness to be kind to us depends on how well we behave and how well we keep the rules. We're in chapter 8 of Romans. If you have a Bible uh, close by, uh, grab that or you can follow along with the bulletin that has the same text. A small section in the middle of Romans 8, a chapter which is about assurance for the Christian, how we can be confident in our relationship with God and his favor and care for us. And all through this chapter, you've had kind of the objective side of assurance, which is because of what Jesus has done, living and dying for you, your war of independence with him and your rebellion against him has been forgiven. And as certainly as Jesus has lived and died for you, uh, your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God. That's the objective side. We're confident because of what Jesus did. There's also a subjective side. To our assurance and that's what we feel in our relationship with God and experience in our relationship with God where we come into uh, contact with his love and favor experientially by what the Holy Spirit does who lives with us and is present with us that's kind of what we talked about last week in the lead-up to this section um, today though we're going to be talking more specifically about what the Holy Spirit does to convince us that we are the children of God, that we've been adopted into God's family and made heirs of God, interestingly enough. Uh, not because we have uh, kept the rules well, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We know that God is faithful to his promises to us, that uh, we're on his good side, fixedly, permanently, and that he is happy with us believe it or not, that he's really happy with us. Uh, we're his children that he loves and is proud of. So we're going to dwell on these things a little bit today, not suss out every implication of them because it's a lifetime's work to do that. Uh, but we're going to think these through in a sermon entitled, I Wish You Had a Dad Like Mine. Now let me pray for us and we'll hear Romans 8 read. Father, we ask that... Um, you would open our hearts to you so that we could feel and experience what our minds mostly already believe about you, but that our hearts are slow to believe. Uh, come speak to us, stir us up by your Holy Spirit, like you say you do in this passage, and let us hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans eight fourteen through 17. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Where I come from in the South, um, when someone gets all the way to the maudlin stage when they're drinking, uh, we have a category for that we call crying about your daddy. Crying about your daddy stage of inebriation. And uh, most everyone can relate to the crying about your daddy dynamic, uh, whether they're sober or not, because for some reason, fathers have this immense responsibility and influence in the world. And this is given to idiots who are young, who have you know, had no practice rounds, who don't know anything about what they're about to do. And yet all of this weighty responsibility and influence given to young idiot men to try to be fathers. And uh, most of us, don't do very well, and we're sort of terrified by it because you can ruin your children's lives pretty easily. Uh, we support the whole uh, psychotherapy industry in the nation uh, because people need to talk about their fathers and what we've done, and you can ruin generations as a father. Even as an idiot young person just feeling your way, you can do damage that seems to last a long time. Everyone knows you know, that absent and bad fathers correlate in people's lives to depression and to addictions, uh, to uh, immaturity generally. You hear, I mean, pretty commonly you hear people talk about their lives as a lifelong pursuit of their father's approval and love, which he always seemed to withhold from them. And some influences that fathers have are even worse than that. So it's a... Uh, it's a devastatingly frightening thing to try to enter into someone's life as a father. And most of us have had ambivalent fathers at best. Uh, most of us have been ambivalent fathers at best. On my Crying About Your Daddy playlist, I've got a song by Andy Gullihorn called Dad Like Mine. That's where I got the name for the sermon. And uh, it's a pretty touching song. He's basically writing this song to his own father who's been a very good father to him, knowing that his own father had a bad father and wishing that his father could have had the experience that he had as the son, which he knows he didn't have with his bad father. So he says, your old man spared his love, but not the rod. I can almost see it in the way you hang your head he taught you there's no reason to believe in God. Who needs another father when they scare you half to death? It's not the way it's supposed to be. I wish you had a dad like mine. One who cared about being there more than being right. I never had to fear the sound of stumbling in. I never had to cower from an angry fist. I never had to lie awake crying in bed. 
he's a different father than the one you are to me. I wish you had a dad like mine. It's not a thinking about your daddy playlist. It's a crying about your daddy playlist. So off me. That's a sentimental song, right? Um, but in the best sense, this is what sentiment is for, right? Our hearts uh, move out in longing towards our fathers. And even if you've got a father that uh, would bear a lot of criticism justly, I'll just say this, that um, to try it yourself and to fail as obviously and badly as most all of us fail, um, certainly slows down your criticism of your own father. It's uh, terribly difficult to live up to your ideals in the lives of your children. When Jesus in our gospel reading uh, said very casually, he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, talking to fathers, and when I hear that, I think, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get you. I, it's, uh, I understand even when I'm trying to do well with my children, uh, I feel the potential for damage right at the door. So, but even in us evil dads, there's almost always a deep desire to see our children thrive in our love and our favor, for them to know that we're proud of them and that we love them deeply and that they're not on probation with us. Uh, almost every dad desires for his children to feel that from him. And the idea that your children would live their lives, even as adults, uh, trying to gain the approval and love from their fathers that their fathers withheld is a devastating thought. And I would hate for that to be the story of my children's life. I hate uh, how much that is the story of my children's lives. And that's why what's said in this passage is so important for us uh, to hear and hear and hear so that we can feel at some point about the generous love and favor that God has, having adopted us as his children, right? That we live in his unchanging, unchangeable love and favor. So that having put your faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian, you have a dad like mine. And uh, I want us to think about what that means for us. There are kind of two aspects that are mentioned in this passage about what it means to be God's children, to be adopted by him. One is that we're his children, and the other is that we are his heirs. His children and his heirs. So first of all, we are his children. It says we've been adopted by the Father. This is a, it's an illustration for us uh, that our relationship with God is analogous to an adopted child. It's also a theological category. Our, our confession of faith says uh, this, adoption is a free gift of God's grace whereby we are received into the number of and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Received into the number of the children of God and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And he says sons like Paul does in this passage. Sometimes he says children, sometimes he says sons, but the idea is that uh, sons inherit. And so by calling... Uh, male and female Christian sons, he means that we all inherit or heirs of God. And that's a cultural accommodation he's making to explain that. But he makes this contrast between our old life and our new life. He says, you used to be 
uh, subject to a spirit of slavery that causes you to fall back into fear. That's the beginning of verse 15. And he says, when you became a Christian, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, uh, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But spirit of slavery, Paul does a lot of kind of alluding back to the Exodus in this, in, uh, this book of Romans, but you know, the, the, you didn't get sent back, led back by the Holy Spirit to Egypt and slavery. You know, the pillar of uh, fire by night and cloud by day in the wilderness. They were led by the Spirit there. Like he says, Christians are led by the Spirit here. He says, you're not being led back to slavery, back to your old life, uh, back into fear. But instead, you've been given the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption, uh, not of slavery. Uh, the Holy Spirit in us who... Uh, stirs us up with confidence that God is our Father so that we cry out, Abba, Father, to him. This, uh, this very personal and intimate relationship that we can have with God now. Uh, very welcome, uh, very free, with his love and favor guaranteed to us. Right? Um, this is the subjective side of, of assurance. Right? The, the word Abba is, uh, seems to be, in terms of formality, somewhere between daddy, like Rednecks say, and uh, father. Father's a little more formal than Abba. Daddy may be a little uh, uh, less formal, but uh, it is the personal, intimate uh, word that people use to speak to their father and address their fathers, Abba, in the Middle East. And he says, we can speak to God himself that way, which is a very dramatic thing to say. The God who lives in unapproachable light is willing to be known by us in this personal and intimate way as Abba. Um, but to be adopted, as a lot of you know uh, firsthand from being adopted or uh, by adopting children yourselves, uh, is a pretty traumatic transition for anybody. It's hard to get used to. And you hear stories about children uh, newly adopted hoarding food uh, because they live in fear that they will lose your favor and the food won't be provided anymore. Uh, they don't feel the confidence of children yet uh, and that fear drives them to hoard food. Or to uh, behave in ways that dare you not to love them, to, to act out in dramatic ways, uh, to sort of put the lie to all of this love talk that you've been giving them uh, because what they've learned in their lives often is that you can't trust people who say that they love you. And so you, you get those kind of acting out uh, incidents and trauma with newly adopted children because they're used to slavery, they're used to fear. They're used to not living in the comforting uh, blanket of certain unchangeable love and favor. And so the, the spirit of slavery says, if I keep the rules, God will keep his promises to me. If I keep the rules, I'll stay on his good side. If I keep the rules, I'll finally make him happy. And Paul insists here, and the Holy Spirit insists in our lives, that uh, that's not the case. This is a gift. Adoption is a free gift of God's grace, our confession rightly says. Uh, not because we've kept the rules well. I mean, gosh, Paul says somewhere else, it's in the, uh, right at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, he says that we were predestined before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his sons. Before we'd ever broken any rules or kept any rules, before there was anything in us to recommend us to God, he decided to love us. He decided to choose us, to bring us into his family like an adopting father does. Um, 
And so we haven't done anything to get ourselves in this connection to him, and we can't do anything to get ourselves out of this connection with him. Uh, but the fear is, look, I know if my relationship with God is transactional at all, uh, that I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. I haven't kept the rules well enough, so he's not going to keep his promise to me, we assume. We feel. We don't say that out loud because it, it, it sounds, you know, it sounds disrespectful to say it out loud, but we feel it. I haven't kept the rules well enough, so I'm not on God's good side right now. I don't expect him to like me right now. I don't expect him to be happy uh, with me right now because I haven't kept the rules well enough. And maybe if I keep the rules better, then I might get back on his good side. And what Paul says here puts the lie to those things. And if you think about it, it should, because is there anyone who wants that kind of relationship with their children? Any earthly father, any of us evil fathers who want that kind of relationship where our children are terrified of us and who are desperate to do something to get back in our good graces, desperate to do something uh, to cause us to be happy with them and proud of them. I don't want that for my children at all. I want them to be basking in knowing that the crazy old man loves me no matter what. And no matter what happens to me, no matter how not okay I am in my life, uh, I know I can always go to him and he'll love me. Any father wants that. It's why the father in the, uh, the prodigal son story, you remember that Jesus told in Luke 15, um, was so brokenhearted about his older brother who was scandalized by his younger profligate brother coming home and being well-received and the party being thrown for him and, and wouldn't go into the party. He was pouting and his father had to come out to get him. And, and the older brother says, look, I've slaved for you my whole life. I've been your best employee all along. And my younger brother's a terrible employee and has wasted and all of your money and insulted you terribly and embarrassed you. And you throw a party for him. I don't understand how you can do that. And the father is bewildered trying to explain to the older brother. He says, you and your younger brother aren't employees. Our relationship is not transactional. I'm your father. I love you. That can't change. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. I can't help but celebrate that. Um, it's not that I'm not being fair to you as a good employee. I'm not going to give you the employee of the month award because you're not an employee. You're a son. You're a son, and every father wants that kind of relationship with his child. It's not a reward for behaving well. That means on some level, and maybe there are a couple of footnotes for this that you want to put in there, but on some level, you just have to feel this, that in your relationship with God, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. And if it's not, you're never going to live in the favor and love of God. You're never going to experience the privileges of being a child of God because you're never going to be okay enough to deserve what God gives you as his child. So you have to find some way to, to be able to accept being loved this way and cared for this way, um, even in your brokenness, because that's all you have to bring and offer to the relationship. And it means that you have to quit constantly checking your piety and your obedience uh, to decide whether or not God might or might not be happy with you right now. He's not happy with you because you've obeyed so well. He's happy with you because of his mercy to you in Jesus. He's decided 
to be merciful to you, to love you, to be proud of you. And he is. He is. This is present intimacy with God, even while you're not okay. That's unimaginable. It's, it's illogical. But it's the experience of the Christian and the Holy Spirit of God has come to live in us to provoke confidence in us that this is really true. So that we can cry out, Abba, Father, uh, to a God who knows us through and through and has not rejected us. Has not rejected us, but wants us in his family. Been adopted as his child and you're loved unchangeably. So that's the first part of what's happening here. You're his child. But the second part is that you are his heir. Uh, the heir of God. I always hear uh, my friend Cap Fendig from St. Simon's Island who did a Bible study for us one evening and would not stop saying hairs of God. And it did not get less funny as he went along in his Bible study. I don't remember what he said about being hairs of God, just that that's what he said. Um, heirs of God. When we lived in Portland, Oregon, I was bewildered when we moved there that all day long in the coffee shops, and there were lots of coffee shops, there were grown-ups sitting there having coffee and talking. Coffee shops full all day long, 10.30 in the morning, coffee shops full, two in the afternoon, coffee shops full of grown-ups. And I kept thinking, well, how are they doing this? Like, who's buying their coffee? How do they afford to live in this crazy expensive place and drink coffee all day on weekdays? How's this working? And then somebody introduced me to the, uh, the category of the trustafarian, the trustafarian, the trust fund baby, uh, bohemian, uh, who populate Portland, who have money because they got it the old fashioned way, right? Uh, trust fund babies who've grown up and got invested in their trust funds. Scions is the word uh, you often hear if someone has a lot of money coming to them, they're heir of a, a huge fortune. They are called a scion. And a trust fund baby is not vested yet, but it's the legal owner of all of the inheritance and all the money. It's just under trustees in the meantime, but it's the legal and rightful owner and it's coming to them eventually. And so if you tell a kid that you've got it made, that ultimately everything's gonna be okay, at least financially, uh, you're gonna come into a tremendous inheritance, you know, the Garland Millions. Uh, what do you expect that to do to a kid's character to be a trust fund baby? Don't you expect them to be a slacker, right? Like they're gonna, they're gonna slack off because uh, they're covered and everything's ultimately gonna be okay. So they're not gonna apply themselves very well, probably. Um, if you hear that there is a scion, an heir of a big fortune who has made the news, you almost always assume that it's because of some embarrassing indulgence. It's not because they've done uh, something through tremendous diligence that's helped other people. Right? Because you figure they're, they're going to wind up being selfish and they're going to wind up being slackers. And yet, we are called heirs of God. Those who are assured of our future in the resurrection. That um, we will own everything and be completely well provided for. Uh, that in the meantime, we have a little allowance from God uh, that he uses to sort of get us ready and fit us for the new responsibilities, the new experience. Uh, but just like the Israelites were promised the promised land, now that the uh, 
promised inheritances expanded out to the whole earth. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. And this is what we look forward to, uh, that we will be glorified with Jesus, as it says in verse 17 here, um, and that we'll live in a world that works right, that's bountiful, live with bodies that work right, live in a relationship with God and with each other that works right again, that uh, this is our expectation, our inheritance, and it's guaranteed to us. Uh, we don't have to worry that we might lose that. Uh, this is something God has assured us that we have, and we're supposed to live in the confidence of that. Uh, what's the condition on it? You will be an heir if what? Not if you keep all the rules really well. He says in 17, if children, then heirs. Are you God's child? Uh, is your hope in Jesus Christ for being rightly related to God, forgiven by him and accepted by him? Then you are his child. Therefore, you are his heir. You are his heir. I had a friend who was at a uh, social function with uh, some people who clearly had been trust fund babies at some point in their lives, and he was trying to make small talk, and he, he went up to a guy and started talking to him, and he said, he asked him, so, so what do you do? And the guy looked at him, and he said, I don't do anything. And uh, I thought, that's a, uh, you know, high points for smugness, but that's kind of what the Christian says, right? Uh, how is it that you make your way in the world? How is it that you are confident as the owner of all things, I don't do anything. Uh, I'm an heir, I'm a scion of God himself, and I'm taken care of by him. So does that make Christians spoiled and uninterested in obeying their father? I don't, maybe a little, I don't know. I'll say this, if you told me that you could make a deal with me where the people in my congregation became so deeply convinced of God's love for them, so absolutely confident uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus that, that their future inheritance is certain and sure, uh, so absolutely certain that God's love could never be taken away from them, that they became a little bit complacent because of that, well, I would take that deal in a heartbeat. I would love to have a congregation of people whose problem is they're a little bit complacent because they're so persuaded of the surpassing love of God in their lives. Uh, it would sure cut down on the counseling issues that you have as a pastor, right? This is what I would love to have that problem. Uh, for one thing, I think people who are convinced of God's love and care and grace in their lives that way do not become complacent slackers, but become very energized about the Father's mission in the world and very eager uh, to please Him in their lives. But... Um, I mean, just think about the difference between, uh, in a business, someone who is an heir versus someone who is an employee. An heir versus an employee. You know, the employees might look at the heirs and say, ah, born with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, it's all handed to them. You know, they're not even very good. This is all just given to them. They haven't earned anything, and there's resentment in that. But... The owner's concern for the heir is different than his concern for the employee and what he's uh, after in their lives. Because, you know, I mean, say, say there's a daughter who is an heir to the company who's working in the mailroom because uh, dad wants her to experience all parts of the business firsthand. So 
uh, she'll be a better leader when the business is hers. Um, well, there are other people in the mailroom, but his in interest in the employees is that they get the mail delivered. His interest in his daughter, his heir, is that she understands how the whole system works together. And so he's going to be more demanding and harder on her, uh, looking for a different level of engagement and interest from her than he would from just a regular employee. It's kind of like a coach's kid. You know, a, a coach is harder on his own child, usually in Little League, because he's after more than just teaching the kid how to kick the ball. He's wanting to develop the kid into a responsible human adult. He's just out for more with his own children, out for more with the heir. And so the relationship with the heir is never transactional. It's never, well, let me think of some manipulative ways to get you to try harder. Let me, for instance, withhold my love and see if that is, causes you to aspire to a greater obedience. Well, that's not how you treat your child. That's not how you treat an heir. Um, that's how you treat an employee, maybe. But this is not God's way of dealing with us, using you know, the withholding of love to inspire us. He does the opposite. He does the assurance of his love to inspire us to greater obedience and greater love for him. And for, um, for the heir, as a Christian, suffering also looks different. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But it's, uh, suffering is always directed towards a greater purpose that God has in our lives. What he's actually up to is his agenda for us. So the point of the passage is for you to be assured and confident in the love of God for you as your father and be assured and confident of your future uh, with him because you're his child. Not to make you doubt and wonder, uh, have I been good enough? Have I earned this enough? Uh, should God be happy with me right now? Because those aren't the categories for us. The categories for us are of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, where without earning it all, without doing anything, uh, we've been brought into his family and promised a secure future. Some uh, friends of a friend who adopted three children from, uh, from Addis Ababa, however you say that, the capital of Ethiopia, three children, uh, I think like six, three, and one years old, from an orphanage. And they went to pick them up, and it just had them for about half a day. They had gone back to the hotel, and the parents had to go down to the lobby to sign something, or for some reason, they had to briefly leave the children in the room. And uh, when they got back to the room, the six-year-old was gone. Just gone. And they didn't realize uh, that the kind of situation they were in in the orphanage there was far more open. And he was used to, even as a six-year-old, uh, carrying the responsibility for his younger siblings and was used to trying to secure food for them. And so it was nearly lunchtime and he had gone out to try to find them food. But man, he was gone not just for like 10 minutes or something, he was gone for an hour. And they came back, you know, very briefly after they left the room and just panicked, devastated. How can this be happening? What in the world has gone on with them? But they felt like they got to stay with these, the other two kids and they don't know what to do. And uh, after like an hour, the kid just comes back to the room. And the parents haven't gone through this emotional ordeal. Uh, look at him and the dad looks at him and does what dads do. You know, he, he's, uh, he's super intense and kind of angry and super relieved all at the same time. And so he just kind of overwhelms the kids and where were you? What have you done? You can't do that. You can't leave us like that. We were worried sick. 
that kind of, you know, that kind of reaction that anybody would have. And the kid looks at him and just immediately susses out and concludes that the adoption's over. This isn't going to work. And, uh, and is, he says, I'm sad that you can't adopt me now because I've, I've disappointed you and you don't love me. And the man who was adopting him, father, he said, he said, there is one thing you have to know. He says, you can never determine what I feel about you. And I love you. And I am going to be your father. You can never determine what I feel about you. And this is exactly what we're being told in Romans 8. God's saying, you are my child. I love you. You are my heir. Nothing can come between us. You can never determine how I feel about you. And you start to get that in your bones, uh, you'll have a dad like mine. Let's pray. Father, we can understand this. We can relate to it on some levels, but our hearts are hearts of slaves and they are hearts full of fear and we can't change them. So we ask that you would cause us to believe these things, cause these things to fall from our heads into our hearts, shape our lives by your adopting love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.